The administrative law judge in Georgia rules that Marjorie Taylor Greene will not be disqualified from the ballot. We told you that was going to happen. A draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade has leaked. Didn't predict the leak, but we told you that opinion was coming. Another insurrectionist pleads guilty to conspiracy sedition, seditious conspiracy. We told you again, this was going to happen. A federal judge in San Francisco rules against Trump in his lawsuit against Twitter. Is ridiculous lawsuit against Twitter. We told you this would happen. And a satanic temple asks Boston to fly a flag after pre recent Supreme Court ruling again. Well, no, we did not predict that that one would happen. Welcome to Legal AF, Ben Micellis and Michael Popak breaking down all of the key legal cases, key legal issues, key legal news, the most consequential legal issues impacting your life. Great to be on the pod with you, Popak. You too, Ben. This is this one's good. I, I like the fact we're keeping it tight in terms of topics so we can drill down harder. And I'm glad we're just not going to say told you so <laughs> for every one of these topics. We have valuable contributions that we can add. But we did after 63 episodes, our, our, our loyal legal AF audience knows that we have a pretty good track record to give them a, a prediction of what's going to happen in these cases, except for the Satan temple flying thing, which is all new to us two days after the Supreme Court ruled about First Amendment speech. We'll get to that to, at, at some point tonight. Well, let's get right into it right away. Let's talk about that satanic temple. So here's the thing about the satanic temple when you really drill into it. The satanic temple is different than the satanic church. Did you know I that? Saw, I, I, I saw that quote that we do not worship Satan. We are a non-theist, non-deity non based religion. I don't know how they can get away with that with the name Satan in their title, but that's that's freedom of speech. Exactly. So basically <laughs> what this group is, is that their religion is to actually be tolerant of all speech, all religions, make no discrimination against any type of speech. And so what they basically do, what this group does, what their religion really is, is that when uh, people representing the, you know, whether it's a, a, a radical right kind of religious group or whatever, when they petition to have their, you know, cross or their religious symbol flown in a public forum, basically what the satanic temple does, and they've been doing this for a long time now, is they then, the satanic temple will then petition the municipality and say, okay, well, if they're allowed to do it, you've now opened up the floodgates to everything. And that's kind of how they use that satanic temple name. So what this case relates to is a situation in Boston um, where Boston in this municipal area would allow flags to be flown. And some of the flags were like the Boston flags. You know, there was like the state flag. And there was this one other flag that Boston and in its infinite wisdom opened up yeah, to the they public. Always they always had the third flagpole. Right. The third flagpole. And Boston didn't the city itself didn't really regulate other than to make sure that there was like openings on the calendar for people to just, you know, go there and actually hang their own flags. But Boston didn't actually regulate the type of speech. And so all these, you know, 
any type of group that wanted, whether you were like a little league team, whether there was a, a foreign dignitary coming into Boston from another Midas country. touch, Midas, Midas touch flag. Anyone could anyone could fly their flag. And so what this uh, group did, there was a, uh, a a Catholic group that came in and they wanted to fly the cross there. Was it a Catholic group or a Christian group? They wanted. Yeah, to- it was a Christian group. There is a, a well-known flag that dem- that that reflects Christian values. It's a it's a cross on a um, a blue field, and they wanted to fly that. You know, on the third flagpole on on the state house. So the Christian group petitions and basically says, "Hey, we're, we're coming in on this day." And then the, the city of Boston, the person who is now overseeing the flags, who pretty much let all the other flags go in. Basically, mm-hmm. said, wait a minute. I'm a little worried now. I'm a little concerned. Could this be violating the establishment clause of the First Amendment? And we've talked about the establishment clause and we've talked about the free exercise clause, both relating to religion in the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so that basically establishes the separation of church or state, but also that the government can't then interfere with the practice of religion out, you know, in their exercise, basically of of free speech. So that kind of came into tension. There was this Supreme Court ruling. Popak, I'll let you uh, tell people about Mm -hmm. this Supreme Court ruling in the case Shirtleff versus City of Boston that came down on May 2nd, 2022. And then five days later, this uh, satanic church group then comes in and says, well, if you're going to rule that uh, this other church group can fly their flag, we should be able to fly our flag, too. Yeah, I, I like this case for many reasons. It just shows you the real world impact of the U.S. Supreme Court, even though we'll talk later about the the voting to overturn Roe v. Wade, in which in the draft majority opinion by Alito, he says at one point cavalierly and callously, it doesn't, we are not concerned with what happens in the world after we render our decision. I mean, I mean, seriously, he actually wrote that. Well, you know, two days or three days after they decided, and it was a 9-0 vote in Shirtleft versus the city of Boston. So everybody on the court believed that the way that the city of Boston was regulating the third flagpole and by denying the Christian group having never in the history of the city of Boston ever denied anyone else or any other group the right to fly a flag, that that was a viewpoint-based discrimination that's illegal, unconstitutional under the First Amendment. And Breyer, one of his last, maybe his last opinion that he's going to be writing as he departs the court to be replaced by Ketanji Brown-Jackson, he wrote the majority opinion, um, which was joined by Sonia Sotomayor, Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett in the majority. All nine voted. Now, let's talk about this because we're going to talk about what a majority opinion is when we get down to the Roe versus Wade case. The majority, 9-0, voted that Boston violated um, the Constitution in denying the right to fly that flag to to that Christian group. On the heels of the case we talked about last week about the kneeling, praying, assistant football coach at midfield. Very similar analysis there, viewpoint-based discrimination under the First Amendment, and very similar analysis as, as, as to the question of what is government speech? Because if it ain't government speech, 
then it doesn't violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. So private speech does not violate the First Amendment, just as we'll talk about in the Twitter case with Trump. Twitter doesn't violate the First Amendment because they're not a governmental actor. So you have to first starting point for the analysis of this type of case, whether you're kneeling, praying or flying a flag, is whether the speech is government speech. And here, and rather than private speech, all nine justices said for ver under various tests and various analysis that flying that flag on the third flagpole, given the fact the city had no policies in place, never rejected a prior, a prior flag request, is not government speech. No one looking up at that pole, even though it's flying at a Capitol building or a state building, believes that's an expression of the government of their position. And if, they, if the public doesn't believe that, and that's what Breyer said, then it's really not government speech. Now, why was there so many opinions written? Because if our legal AFers go on, and we'll post it in the legal AF Twitter community, there's literally four different opinions that have been written. The majority opinion is the, is the decision of the court. And that's one that, that lawyers can rely on until they change the decision, you know, like they change their underwear with precedent. But right now, that's the majority opinion. Kavanaugh wrote a, a, a concurrence, but he joined the majority. He just wanted to make one distinguishing, one distinguishing issue, which I think the satanic group used three days later to apply for their application to fly the flag because Kavanaugh came out and said, you can't put religious groups on non-equal footing with secular groups. You have to put them on equal footing. And if you put them on equal footing, it's not uh, it's not an establishment clause or a separation of church and state problem. Of course, I think the sat satanic group picked that up right away. The others did not like Breyer's three-part test that he established about when it's something is, is government speech and when it isn't. So you have a concurrence by Alito, like I'm good with the decision, but I don't like the analysis. And you have a concurrence by Gorsuch and Thomas, same thing. We don't like the three-part test. We think it's an, e an easier analysis. And then of course, Gorsuch, because this is the season where the Supreme Court just knocks over all of all precedent they don't like. Gorsuch took a shot at Lemon versus Kurtzbaum, which is a 1960s case that the city relied on, and a lot of cities relied on, by the way, to, to say when something is government speech and when something isn't. And Gorsuch, Gorsuch said, he like excoriated the city. Why are you relying on Lemon versus Kurtzman? We've said in the past that it's not really good law for any other purpose and you shouldn't be relying on the Lemon test. I mean, look, the Supreme Court wants to overrule the lemon test. They can do it. I don't think Gorsuch saying the lemon test is overruled makes it so. But, you know, they're 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 knocking over all the pins of all these precedents um, as they finish up this term. So satanic temp, say, Satan group, whatever the Satan group is, says we have a nice flag with a Satan symbol on it. We'd like to fly over the Capitol. Um, so they applied for it. And Mayor Wu, the newly elected mayor in Boston, and I want to I want to leave it on to get your opinion on this. She said, we're evaluating the decision of the Supreme Court and our flag policies as to the third poll. Now, Ben, couldn't they, if they wanted to eliminate the third poll rather than fly flags? They could absolutely eliminate the third poll and they can take a broader interest through a permitting process, through a kind of a government led, you know, and controlled process where it would then fall into the ambit of government speech. You know, why would Breyer write this opinion? Because what Breyer's opinion, 
you know, even though it's fairly lengthy, it basically waters it down to this was a very unique set of facts here in Boston, where for whatever reason, the Boston government didn't itself kind of micromanage or even manage macromanage the flag. They just like literally ran a calendar where people could, you know, apply, you know, and there wasn't really even a process of uh, rejecting an application. You know, it was just, okay, is it in this day? You know, is it not like inappropriate kind of con, you know, content, but otherwise go fly whatever flag that you want. So what Breyer said, well, if the facts change and circumstances change and the policy change, this decision would be different. And like you say, Popak, what Gorsuch basically would say is fly the religious symbol, you know, the religious symbols that he likes. I think it would be a very different decision if it was, and this is why the satanic temple is doing it and why their whole kind of entity is a troll of kind of religious forces trying to insinuate themselves in government because what Gorsuch is really saying in his concurrent opinion, take away this lemon test so that we can basically have, you know, the Christian cross on government buildings. Like he doesn't see that distinction at all. And he thinks that governments really, the establishment clause and the free exercise clause where the where there's tension, Gorsuch says free exercise clause, stop stopping religions from expressing their religion in schools, in public buildings. That's what Gorsuch is saying in his concurring opinion. And the satanic temple, while this sounds like an absurd example, they're pushing back at that. They go, oh, really? You want to see the slippery slope that you open up there? But here's my ultimate point too, Popak. Like the city of Boston, I think was just trying to do something kind of cute and fun and like community building. And for like 12 years, they were like, all right, take the third flag, everybody, the little league team, the this, the that, you know? And then you have this like, you know, radical right, like religious group that kind of comes right. in and goes, we want to fly the cross. And then it raised the question, the city of Boston had to respond. And now the satanic temple comes in. But you see why you have to have these distinctions and why our founders were so smart in the Constitution, because you, you, you do want to really separate, you know, church and state. You really don't want to go past a, a municipal building and see and, and see someone else's religion saying this is the official religion. Well, let, well let me let me leave it on this because we move on to the next segment. The 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 new the spokesperson for the satanic group said they're not sure which flag they're going to fly. One of them that they're that is in the in the uh, proposal is the uh, pentagram with a goat head. You know all the classic symbols of Satan flying over the Boston State House. This is what they've created now with this 9-0 decision. And I sort of like this group now that you've described it better to me. It's like the National Lampoon. Of, of, you know, in favor of First Amendment rights and Jordy Mysalis better get going on illegal AF and or Midas Touch flag because I want to see that in Boston before they pull down that policy. <laughs> so remember, for legal AFers, First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, establishment clause, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, free exercise clause. Those two things come into tension or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, right to freedom of speech, right to freedom of the press. And where the Supreme Court ruled on, on this case, where Breyer ruled, private speech, free speech, right, basically, was, was the key there. 
but we will keep you posted on more updates because what we're going to see with this radical right extremist court, though, is their view where it says the free exercise thereof, that basically religions have the ability to exercise those religions, not just in their private quarters, but in public spaces, and how that ultimately impacts the separation of church and state in the Establishment Clause. Moving on to the Trump versus Twitter and Jack Dorsey case. So it was actually so Trump and a few other groups, uh, you know, filed this. It was President Trump, the American conservative union that has co-opted the term conservative, but they're just a bunch of radical right extremists and five individuals. They sued Twitter and Jack Dorsey. Um, and they also sued a putative class of Twitter users on behalf of themselves and a putative. They've tried to make it a class action. It's a very strange thing. And basically they sued because they claimed that they were, quote, deplatformed and censored by defendants. And so we had talked about this in the past in Legal AF because we dealt with this issue on venue um, and the forum of where it was filed. It was originally filed in Florida federal court. And there, there was a forum selection clause in the Twitter terms of service. And so when you go to those terms of service, whether it's your Apple terms of service or your Twitter terms of service, and you read it and here in the Twitter terms of service, it says, if users want to sue us, you have to sue us in San Francisco. And Donald Trump's argument to that uh, forum selection clause was basically Um, You know, as the president of the United States, that forum selection clause applies to like Americans, but it doesn't apply to people who were the president of the United States and and other arguments that were and also that he, he almost implied that he was not smart enough to read the terms of service and that the terms of service like were tricky to him and that they were coercive to him. Anyway, this the Florida court rejected those horrible arguments. The case was transferred to San Francisco. Once transferred to the federal court, the Northern District of California, which sits in San Francisco, um, Twitter filed a motion to dismiss, which under the federal rules is Rule 12B6. And Twitter filed a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim under 12B6. The court granted the 12B6 motion, so it dismissed Donald Trump's lawsuit and the lawsuit brought by American Conservative Union and the five individuals. They did grant what's called leave to amend, giving Donald Trump one final chance to try to correct the errors in the complaint, which is... We'll talk about that after your analysis, Popak, of the ruling, just about what leave to amend is. Um, but why don't you break down, Popak, what the uh, this order dismissing Donald Trump's lawsuit stated? It's it's amazing how long ago and how all of these things, this river of knowledge that you and I in this conversation we've been having for almost two years, um, how that river just twists and turns and comes back around so we can have another conversation in May about the case and follow it closely. He files, as you said, in Southern District, Florida, in front of a judge that I know, Judge Scola. Judge Scola looks at terms of service and says, go take this to another court. It gets it gets refiled or transferred Northern District of California, as you noted, Ben, to a judge. I'm not sure you know this judge, but this judge, Jim Donato, James Donato, appointed by Obama, very strong judge, very strong lawyer before he ascended to the bench practicing antitrust and class action law for major Wall Street type firms, primarily on the defense side. So he's, you know, sort of defense oriented. But this was relatively straightforward for him. 
he he looked at the it's not even the first complaint. We're on the second complaint already. We're on an amended complaint. They already had one shot. What normally happens procedurally is that the other you'll file your complaint. The other side, if they think they have a good faith argument that some aspect of your complaint fails the state of fails the state a claim under the federal rules or state law, whatever you're bringing it under, because you haven't met the test, you haven't stated the elements, you, the law is against you about what you think the, the, uh, supports the claim and what doesn't. And as a matter of law, you think that the, the case should be or the claim should be dismissed. You file a motion to dismiss. The other side has an option. They can either say, no, we we stand on our pleading. We think the pleading is strong. I think the and complaint then, is strong when you say pleading. The, uh, yeah, the, the, the complaint, right? I said pleading. I meant pleading is a broad term. The complaint is strong and we'll stand on it. Or they can say, well, there are some things in the motion to dismiss. We could improve uh, our pleading. So you get sort of one bite at the apple without asking the court for relief. And you can amend your case yourself. You can say, yeah, I could tweak this claim a little bit better. I could add a few more facts here and there. Thank you for giving me the roadmap in the motion to dismiss papers. Uh, we'll heed your recommendation. Here's a new complaint. And that's called the amended complaint. That's what they did here. They filed an amended complaint, having already seen the earlier, I believe, motion practice. And this Popak, for everyone listening, before the judge ever even ruled on the Twitter's first motion to dismiss, Twitter filed a motion to dismiss. And Trump's response before this ruling that we're talking about now was, all right, I'm going to edit my complaint. I'm going to change right. some of the facts. And under the rules, he had the right. He didn't even have to ask court for permission That's based right. on the timing. He's allowed to just. Right. And we've edits. done and we've done that in our practice. I've done that in my practice. You're like, I mm -hmm. could fix this a little bit better just to avoid an argument, to avoid the motion practice. Uh, and then then the Twitter looked at it and said, nope, that's no better. They filed a second motion to dismiss that gets fully briefed. And then it's before the judge. And the, there's two fundamental issues that were up on this motion. One is, did Twitter violate or can Twitter as a private entity, a private firm, violate the First Amendment rights of, of a U.S. citizen or not? And some people might be scratching their heads. Because sure, we always throw that term. First, my First Amendment, I have the First Amendment right. The, the, my company is violating my First Amendment rights because they won't let me do something on the, on the email server or whatever. But let's make this clear. The, the First Amendment is against government intrusion in your right to freely express yourself under the First Amendment, not your next door neighbor, your employer, or in this case, the social media platform that you've privately chosen to join and they've allowed you to join under terms of service. That's not First Amendment violation when you're deplatformed, when Twitter edits you, when we block you or we block a troll or whatever. That's not First Amendment because we're not the government. And that's that was the first that you think, well, doesn't the president, former president of the United States understand how the First Amendment works and his lawyers? Apparently not, because that was a big subject of Judge Donato's ruling Twitter is not a governmental entity, and therefore them deplatforming you and banning you from communicating with your 88 million. God, Ben, I forgot how many followers he had. 88 million followers is not a violation of the First Amendment. What else you got? And the next claim that they had was under Section 230 of the Communications Act, that that, that provision, which insulates and provides liability protection from platforms from doing things like deplatforming and doing, 
you know, what would be viewpoint-based discrimination if they were a government, but they're not, they're a private entity, gives them protection from lawsuits. And he claimed, because he wanted to get around 230, Trump did, he said 230 of the Communications Act is unconstitutional. The judge said, no, I'm, I'm not declaring Section 230 of the Communications Act unconstitutional. Now, he did give him, and I'm not even sure why, because he didn't really have to, gave him one more opportunity to file a, another, a second amended complaint or a first amended complaint to fix these problems. But he also gave him an admonishment, Ben. The judge said, I don't want to see any new claims. Fix your First Amendment claim. I don't know how you're going to do that. And fix your 230 claim. But I don't want to see anything else or whatever. That's it. You're, that's your pleading. I'm going to give you one more shot. And then let's make predictions because we like those. What do you think is going to happen when they try to fix I, 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 See, here's the thing. There are some <laughs> predictions where even at the beginning where I'm like, I told you so. Here's, here's where it's a little bit of a cheat. Because it's very hard to predict certain things. First off, this case is an easy case to predict because it's a really stupid case by Donald <laughs> Trump. Like it's the dumb. It goes against the most basic fundamental First right. Amendment law. So it's really easy. There are other cases that so 100% the case is going to be dismissed. 100, 100%. Ben, is, don't hold back. Hedge a little. <laughs> no, I if I could do 110%, I would go 110% the case is getting dismissed. But there are more complicated cases, though, you know, and as we're going to talk about later, like the Dobbs Mississippi case, which is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's very hard to you can know the general trends, you can know the composition of the court. But after I see the oral argument and I see what the judges are saying, they and you've been doing this long enough, like the, the lawyers there likely see the writing on the walls, too, you know, and, and lawyers who know the space will generally know. So it makes the prediction easier. So, Popak, though, let me tell you why the judge granted uh, leave to amend, even though you're right, the judge probably didn't have to. This was the first time this judge was actually ruling on the paperwork because the other That's amendment true. made by Trump was his own amendment after Twitter filed before it got to the judge. So this judge knows that Trump is going to appeal. And one of the grounds for appealing could be the judge should have granted me at least one opportunity to amend. And that would be what Trump would hang his hat on on the appeal. And then if Trump won that argument on appeal that I could have just made this one change and now give me that and then Trump wins in the appeal. Then Trump drags this on longer, claims a victory. The court of appeal, he'll misconstrue what the court of appeal said and said, I won in the court of appeals on this case. This, this district court judge, you know, was wrong. And this district court judge, I think, wants to avoid yeah. knowing, avoid that, knowing who his uh, uh, plaintiff here, his his. You're you're Hopefully you're exactly right. I, I people know because it's public. I, I represent John Melendez, stuttering John against Sirius XM. I just had an argument at the Second Circuit in which the judge below uh, judge. Um, uh, I, forgot, I forgot. I forgot my underlying judge. Uh, the judge below at the trial level did not give me leave to amend um, at, when this judge just did for Trump. And that is a grounds for my appeal. Um, related to that. So you're 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 so right about uh, this judge just dotting his I's and crossing his T's to avoid, you know, make it, making whatever appeal happens not be because he didn't give Trump enough rope to hang himself. And the difference, Popak, your case is a com is a complicated case, a complex case with unsettled law, potentially mm -hmm. um, this case with Trump, though, 
is a case with settled law where the judge could clearly just dismiss this outright yes, because true. the First Amendment argument is so clear, but he just doesn't want Trump to make that argument. And as this judge says in his ruling, plaintiff's main claim is that defendants have, quote, censored plaintiff's Twitter accounts in violation of their right to free speech under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Plaintiffs are not starting from a position of strength. Twitter is a private company and, quote, the First Amendment applies only to governmental abridgments of speech and not to alleged governmental abridgments by private company. Plaintiffs' only hope of stating a First Amendment claim is to plausibly allege that Twitter was in effect operating as the government under the state action doctrine. So that, in other words, that Twitter was co-opted by the United States government or by federal officials to operate its system. And that clearly is not what take what takes place for those super geeky legal efforts. Notice the court uses plaintiffs only hope of stating a First Amendment claim is to plausibly allege that's because the pleading standard <laughs> to get past a 12 B six motion is called plausibility under a line of cases called Iqbal and Twombly, whereas in yeah. state cases, there's something that's just called notice pleading where you just have to play the other side on notice of your claims to get past a motion to dismiss and start the discovery. In federal court, it's a higher standard called plausibility. So with the plausibility, Trump just can't allege it like with bare allegations and accusations. Right. You have to make it plausible and you can't just say, you know, hey, the government controls Twitter. You have to explain why that is. And Trump's failed miserably here. This case is 100 percent getting dismissed. Moving on, Popak, I want to talk about the next case, the seditious conspiracy uh, claim now has its third individual who's pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. We've talked about it before on the pod, how rare seditious conspiracy charges are in the history of United States jurisprudence that a group of people has conspired to overthrow the United States government, how rare it's been applied in our in, in the history of the government. This is now the third Oath Keeper terrorist to flip on Stuart Rhodes pleading guilty to seditious conspiracy and throwing Stuart Rhodes under the bus. And why is this incredibly important? Because even in this plea, you see that there are uh, statements in the plea that this individual who, whose name is William Todd Wilson, he's from North Carolina. He actually wasn't in the initial conspiracy indictment. He was recently charged. And we're then gonna we're going to comment about that, what that probably means. And then he pled guilty right away. But he says in his plea that the night of following the insurrection. So after the insurrection fell, Stuart Rhodes was calling someone. It appeared with a connection directly to Trump saying, get Trump on the phone. And at that point, the person wouldn't put Trump on the phone, which begs the question. He seemed to have access to Trump. And at the night. When it failed, Trump wouldn't take that call. But earlier in that day was their direct communication with Trump. Was Stuart Rose Rhodes directly linked to Mark Meadows? Was Stuart Rhodes directly linked to 
uh, Steve Bannon? Was he linked to someone with direct uh, uh, contact with Trump at that time? And that's why I think they're very focused also on the Stuart Rhodes piece of this. And now they have three people who flipped on Stuart Rhodes for seditious conspiracy, you know, for overthrowing attempts to overthrow the government. So Popak, oh, one thing I want to mention here too now, before I forget, when we talk about the Marjorie Taylor Greene case. Speaking the, of seditious conspirators. When I was reading through the administrative law judge's statement of facts mm-hmm. and defining the incident of insurrection, um, the Democrats did something very, very smart right after the insurrection by putting in actual law, putting in legislation, the declaration that what took place on a bipartisan basis was an insurrection passed at both the House and the Senate. And they used the terms insurrection actually passed and affirmed by the Senate and the and the House. I had never really real. Yeah. It, it was always a footnote. But the fact that the House and the Senate have confirmed what's taken place is an insurrection as a matter of law is something that is interesting. We'll talk about the Marjorie Taylor yeah, Green case, should, though, about whether what the judge found. But that fact was important to me because mm-hmm. now you have these seditious conspiracy cases. You have what's taking place is called by lawmakers to be uh, affirmatively an insurrection. I think the uh, walls are closing in on this one on, on Trump. Oh, yeah. And and Trump, too. So what I liked about this result, among many things, is the the timing of the indictment on the same moment as the plea and demonstrating cooperation by William Todd Wilson, who is not a low level of the 20 Oath Keepers that have been indicted. After Stuart Rhodes, William Todd Wilson, who we never heard of, because he was not a part, as you mentioned, of the original indictment, may be the most important witness against the Oath Keepers that the government has. And the fact that they kept him under wraps, of course, he knew he was staring down the barrel of an indictment. His lawyers knew that. I'm sure he's been cooperating. And they struck a plea deal. You stand in that court. You plead guilty. We're going to indict you at one at 12.01. At 12.02, you're going to plead guilty. And, and that kept a very tight rein on the information and leaks related to William Todd Wilson. What is he going to testify to? Because he said it in the allocution or the statements that the government filed in their, in their filings about his indictment and about his plea. He was, as you said, he was in the room with Stuart Rhodes when Stuart Rhodes on a speakerphone had a call with somebody who indicated to William, William Todd Wilson, to the listener, had direct access and line of sight to Donald Trump. Now, he didn't know who it was because he didn't recognize the voice. Who knows who it was? Stuart Rhodes, because he made the phone call. But whoever it was on that phone, as you so eloquently put it, Ben, indicated to everybody else on that phone call that he had a direct line of sight to the president and was rejecting Stuart Rhodes' request for direct conversation with, with Trump. To do what? To ask Donald Trump to give the Oath Keepers the order to unleash their violence to stop the peaceful transfer of power and allow him to cling to power. And that implicates Stuart Rhodes, of course, as this news continues to tighten around him um, and and others. So now you've got 10 total that have been 
um, indicted for seditious conspiracy. He used to be nine, but now William Todd Wilson is 10th. He also pled guilty to obstruction. So he's a twofer. What did he do on the day of the insurrection? Well, first of all, he brought in arms because this was an armed insurrection, notwithstanding what some Republican Congress people have said. He had an AR-15, he had a nine millimeter, he had 200 rounds of ammunition, and he had body armor. And he and the other quick response team on their golf carts under the under the direction of Stuart Rhodes were in the Phoenix Hotel um, with their ammo cache, cache of, of weapons, ready to be used at a moment's notice, literally. He's also literally the first Oath Keeper into the Capitol. So he is the very tip of the spear in breaking down the door of the Capitol and, and, and banging his way in. Now knowing that he was armed or had access to arms at the same time, it's amazing that more people did not die. Um, and as bad as this was, this could have been even, it's hard to believe it could, could have been even worse. But now this, for me, Ben, this combination of immediate indictment with plea means to me that he's been cooperating for quite some time and that Stuart Rhodes is in a world of hurt. He was before. Now he's trying to dismiss his case and all this other stuff. But but when he's tried, and you know Stuart Rhodes, what are the chances Stuart Rhodes is going to plead guilty? Zero, right? He's going to put on a trial, whether it's a show trial or not. They're trying Stuart Rhodes. And this, this, this most recent one, and the connection possibly to Trump through the Trump inner circle could be one of the most important witnesses of all 750 that we've heard of so far the whole thing just as as you even say it like that popak with the ammunition the guns that they were ready to go and engage in a mass killing of lawmakers and there were like logistical flaws in the plan, you know, Trump as an as just a a leader is is as an executive is like a horrible. Thankfully, is just a horrible executive. But he puts out these signals to try to encourage all of those things to happen. He's clearly in direct communication through you know, at least through one intermediary, you know, with a lot of these radical extremist groups, these terrorist groups. And just to even think that you have lawmakers and Republicans who still refuse to call this thing an insurrection, who look at people like Stuart Rhodes as being patriots is the most sickening and disgusting thing that that's out there. And in addition, did you to- see Ben? Let me ask you something. Did you see? We, we won't talk about it directly tonight until we read it. But you see, Mark Espers, the former defense secretary, is about to release his memoirs. And I, I, you and I went back and forth a little bit about it. He actually puts in his memoirs that, and he resigned three days after the election, the secretary of defense. He had already alerted the National Guard after the election to, to not respond. If Trump tries to use the military, just as he did to clear the park uh, behind the White House as he made his way to the church, um, if he tries to do it again and use the military to cling to power, they are to call him the Secretary of Defense first, and he would either try to persuade Trump not to do it or, or do a press conference on the Capitol steps in resignation about it. I mean, 
this these memoirs that are now coming out, like Mark Espers and others, um, I, I mean, how close we were to um, a dictatorship and an overthrow of our rule of law in the Republic is is um, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about this for a long time. We were a lot closer to it than we even thought the night of Jan six. I go back to after the election was called for Biden. There's that press conference with Mike Pompeo and they ask Mike Pompeo about cooperating with the transition of power. And Mike Pompeo says there is not going to be any transition of power. Trump won and Trump's not leaving office. I just remember at the time I was in my car. I was driving back. I watched the elections from uh, another location. I just remember hearing those words and it was just so chilling and it set in motion all of the things that we then saw through January 6th and um, that we're talking about now on the podcast. We have a lot more to talk about on Legal AF. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. And everybody knows that Athletic Greens has been a major major game changer in my life. Before Athletic Greens, I would take various vitamins and different types of pills. And I would think that that's how I was getting my nutrients and it was not helping me at all. And since I've started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens, I've had more energy. I feel great. You know, I've been able to work out more. I've lost a lot of weight. I credit that all personally to Athletic Greens. And it's just super simple. It's this green powder. I take one scoop. I put it in a cup, put water in. I shake it up. I drink it. That's all I need for the day. I don't have to create some complicated or complex regimen. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a category leading superfood product. It brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. And keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pill capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. And to help each of us be our best, simplify the path to our nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things is what Athletic Greens is all about. It's lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, this is for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. Join the movement of athletes, life athletes, moms, dads, rookies, first-timers, and everyone in between taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash LegalAF today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash LegalAF to take control of your health and give AG1 a try the same way I gave AG1 a try, the same way so many legal AFers, so many Midas Mighty have given it a try. And it's always just so great to see in my DMs, in my emails, when people say, you know what, you told me to take AG1, I did, and this has actually really, really changed my life for the better. I'm confident that you will feel the same way. I wanna talk about Smith AI also, 
I'm a big user of Smith AI. Clients demand an instant response, but now more than ever, businesses are spread thin. If you're losing leads from visitors to your website or missing calls that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service ever, Smith AI. I, I truly mean that. Smith AI provides businesses with award-winning virtual receptionists who handle your calls, chats, and texts to unlock new business at a fraction of the cost of hiring an in-house staff. And so what I do right for my law website, when you sign on to it, you go to garagos.com, you'll see it. I use Smith AI and the receptionists are incredible. Like I can see the conversations that the Smith AI receptionist has with individuals who are calling my office or emailing my office with lots of complex issues. They handle it with care. They handle it with tact. They're empathetic to my clients, you know, or future clients who may have lots of serious issues and they know how to handle that well. They pass the information on to me right away. And everyone who's called the office has been super impressed by the friendly and professional agents who have screened the leads for my customers and they will do the same for you. Plus they have English and Spanish speaking receptionists and will block spam for free, including all of those annoying sales calls, which is just incredible. And they can handle your calls after hour calls or just your overall flow. So work uninterrupted, run your business with less stress and get more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI pays for itself and then some. With all new clients, their receptionist will help you win. Never miss another lead, boost revenue, increase your focus at work and keep your staffing costs down. It's as simple as forwarding your calls to Smith AI and having Smith AI go on your corporate website. Plans start at just $240 a month. I mean, that's incredible. Try Smith AI today and see for yourself why business owners um, have basically said this is the secret to business growth and client happiness. And our listeners will save $100 when you sign up. Use our promo code LegalAF at smith.ai. Visit smith.ai. So it's not.com. Go to smith.ai. AI and read the five-star reviews and be sure to use our code. It's legal AF, L-E-G-A-L-A-F. So go to smith.ai, use the code legal AF and save $100 at sign up. Don't let another day go by try Smith AI. It's really great. If you have a business, this will help you a, a ton. Um, it's It's been great, great, great for me. Um, Popak, moving on. I want to talk about this Marjorie Taylor Greene administrative ruling that came out in uh, Georgia. You and I have been following these hearings under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. It's the clause that basically bars insurrectionists, people engaged in insurrection. Those are important words, engaged in, because that was a major part of this administrative judge's uh, analysis. Um, but a group of voters in Georgia challenged Marjorie Taylor Greene from being on the ballot. They said, quote, she was engaged in insurrection and under the 14th Amendment, Section three, she should not be allowed to even be on the ballot. Uh, so they challenged her through this administrative process in Georgia. Marjorie Taylor Greene challenged it in federal court to get an injunction, an emergency injunction to stop the hearing in the administrative hearing from taking place. And she alleged that there was a clemency granted to uh, insurrectionists uh, in the Civil War 
um, and that that clemency basically applies to her so that it's a few for all insurrectionists in the future. This law from the 1870s giving this clemency to uh, the Confederates applies to her. The federal court said, no, 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 that doesn't apply to you. So go through this administrative hearing. And we streamed this administrative hearing where Marjorie Taylor Greene took the stand. She couldn't recall anything. I don't recall. I don't recall this. I don't recall that. She said a lot of things that were contradictory and that we knew made no sense. But you and I ultimately predicted, I think, for two reasons we thought that Marjorie Taylor Greene was not going to be taken off the ballot. The first is an overriding kind of constitutional issue. There is no uh thing in the constitution that says how you enforce the 14th amendment section three like can you just go to this administrative judge who listens to like you know uh your driver's license exactly (laughs) you know is is that the forum for something this weighty or do you have to be convicted of being an insurrectionist like we talked about or at least declared by the congress where she resides you talked about a joint statement declaring what is, defining what was January 6th, with all due respect to the Congress, which is in currently in the hands of the Democrats, you know, I'm not even sure she was censured particularly for that. She was censured for other things, which I do not believe there was was a censure for chasing survivors of school of Stoneman Douglas Elementary School. I'm telling them they were actors. Right, right. Or right. The the school, the other the high school in uh, in South Florida and chasing those people. But she was not censured for this. So they didn't even have that to hang their hat on. Like, look, here's a piece of paper. Says she's an insurrection, assigned the US Congress. We don't even have that. And then the other part was because you don't get discovery in this process, like you couldn't take Marjorie Taylor Greene's deposition and the DOJ still, you know, doing what it's doing very methodically. We don't really have like a smoking gun text yet or all these other witnesses who would come in to basically testify, you know, under the words engaged in insurrection for purposes of this specific hearing of disqualification. Would you basically show that she was giving the commands and that she was giving the orders or that she was actually the person who, um, you know, was one of the people who stormed the Capitol and attacked the cops um, and, you know, destroy Nancy Pelosi's office? Or was she just in the Capitol at the time? Now, if you had the evidence, for example, that she was giving the tours of the Capitol to help them plan and plot, and that was something introduced yeah. as admissible evidence, to me, that actually would be enough evidence to say she engaged in it. She helped lead it and help plan and, and plot it. But what this judge basically said is that engaged is a very specific term. The term engaged means to like literally command or participate in as in attacking the cops and like destroying the actual building. He said like basically advocating disloyal things. It's actually in the ruling advocating disloyal things would not constitute engaging in Right. Insurrection. Um, And the judge basically said, I'm going to preserve Marjorie Taylor Greene's objections on the constitutional grounds. But I'm also ruling that in terms of the engaging in the insurrection and the court said, 
it's and, and you know we, we will accept it's an insurrection based on what Congress said, based on the facts. They called it like an invasion and the invasion is an insurrection. It was a weirdly worded opinion in that sense, like why he kept saying the word invasion and insurrection. But anyway, he acknowledged it was an insurrection, but said that she didn't command it. And I think people can say, well, she clearly gave the signals. All of her past conduct clearly inspired it. And I think with this administrative draw saying inspiring it with disloyalty is not engaging it. Yeah. Yeah. you, You hit the nail on the head. And to be honest, I'm not sure he was wrong. The the he said there was not enough persuasive evidence to even get to the argument, the constitutional argument of whether the Insurrection Act was overruled by the Amnesty Act of uh, that came out later in 1872. So I don't even have to get there because the burden hasn't been met to show me persuasive evidence that Green took an action about the insurrection on Jan 6th. He said there was no direct physical effort by her. In other words, she wasn't on the ramparts. She wasn't tearing down the bicycle racks. She didn't contribute personal services or capital. There's no evidence that was presented to him that she paid for Stuart Rhodes to come to Washington or that she you know, let some of her people work for him or some of these other on-the-ground insurrectionists. There was no evidence that she issued commands, like standing on the Capitol with a bullhorn on Jan 6 saying, do it, hit the doors, go for it. None of that. And, and he's right about that. He said even statements of encouragement were not presented as evidence. And he didn't take the tweets as being statements of encouragement at the time of the insurrection. If you define the insurrection, not as the environment that led to the insurrection, if you don't define it as the big lie, and I, I think he's probably right about that for this purpose, for the purpose of the Constitution and who is an insurrectionist. If you only define it in the box of Jan 6th, what did she do on Jan 6th was his point. And he, there was no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence was really contrary to that. She apparently was inside the Capitol, you know, cowering under her desk with the rest of them of all political persuasions while the attack was going on. I think at one point she said, you know, nobody believes anything she says, but at one point she says, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of the Capitol attack. They were trying to hunt down Congress people. So he went through methodically all of that. And then he ended, he ended the decision, which we'll post with her heated rhetoric, which he acknowledged the 1776 comments and all the big lie and martial law and all of that may have contributed to the environment that led to the, as you said, invasion or insurrection. He had a weird verbal tick about the terms. I don't know why he kept doing that, but it, he, he, he acknowledged that, that they may have done that, but he cabined that under that is protected free speech. You can, you can have these opinions. Should we use martial law? Did the election really happen? Did did, did Biden really win? You can do all that, as crazy as that sounds, and that doesn't rise the level of insurrection under the Constitution to take you out of your seat or your primary. And then Raffensperger, which we talked about, within hours, I think like two hours, adopted completely the 17 pages of Judge Boudreaux and said she's on the ballot in May now, this month, in the next two weeks. Now, a little bit of background. We know we've talked about Raffensperger as being the recipient of the phone call, looking for the extra votes 
and threat and threats and extortive threats by Trump and Meadows made to Raffensperger. But Raffensperger is also a politician and he's running for office and he's drawn a challenger right now, which is a Trump endorsed former congressperson who he's up against, Joni Heiss, in a very contested primary. So say what you want about Brad Raffensperger, but he wants to win election. And I'm not sure finding Marjorie Taylor Greene from the 14th Congressional District off the ballot helps his chances to stay in office. Yeah, Raffensperger didn't want anything to do with this. Uh, even if the ruling by the administrative judge happened to go in the other direction, I tend to think that Raffensperger would have said, well, I appreciate the recommendation. I still don't think as a matter of constitutional principles that this is a decision that my administrative judge can make is what I would have thought Raffensperger would have yeah, done. I agree with any you would have done anyway. Um, But as you said, Popak, I mean, Raffensperger is a Republican. Raffensperger is someone who is trying to um, truncate, limit, severely curtail voting rights in his state. That's who Raffensperger is. Raffensperger just wasn't going to uh, go along with the fabricated accusations and the big lie that Trump was spreading. That's where that's where Raffensperger drew the line. But right before that, in terms of disenfranchising people through nefarious methods of taking away voting boxes and cutting down the hours of voting and limiting mail voting, Raffensperger is all for all that other stuff. It's right. just, you know, and, and then the other the other piece that's worth a li- just a, a little bit of commentary, though, is ultimately, you know, OK, so does Marjorie Taylor Greene win this? I mean, I guess on the paperwork she did. But I mean, to me, for her to win kind of just exposes the cowardness of her and people of her ilk, that they use this rhetoric, they use this disloyal rhetoric to even quote the words of the judge. Then when they're put under oath, the very first thing they do is play the victim. I, I, I was the victim of it. It's, they were trying to attack me. The people that you inspired and encouraged were trying to attack you. That's what you're saying. Or even as we start talking about the leak, of the uh, decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. What's the first thing all of these Republicans, all of these radical right extremists who have wanted this to happen forever? What do they do? The leak. Oh, this leak has hurt me. The leak has oh. damaged me. Oh, the leak, the leak, the leak. This is the they cower and play the victim role versus embrace. This is what you fought for, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You fought for the insurrection. You got the insurrection that you wanted. Now you take the stand and then you yeah. act like you, you didn't want that insurrection to take place so you can win this case. You, you have no principle. Same thing with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. You fought for overturning Roe v. Wade. And now you're going to whine about how the leak somehow no. harms the privacy rights of the United States Supreme Court. But even even and you, your brother, you and the brothers will talk about this on your podcast and about the, the politics of it. There's already been a leak from the Senate Republican uh, Republican uh, group about how they're going to spin Roe v. Wade being overturned. And it is really Roe disgusting. v. Wade. They're going to spin Roe v. Wade being overturned. They're going to spin Roe v. Roe v. Wade. We're not against the mothers and the babies. It's not the mothers and the babies. It's those mean abortionists and doctors and we're going to criminalize them, but never the mommies and the babies. I mean, this is what 
they're going to do to rip away. We'll talk about it next. Rip away for the first time in the history of the of the of the Supreme Court, a right that was extended to a group that needed protection, which are women and having ripped that ripped that right away. But not the mommies and the babies. I mean, it's a really disgusting party. You know, I've told people be a member of your party. It's fine. I, I my morality and my politics happen to align perfectly with the Democratic Party. I don't agree with everything they do, but that's where I that's my house. That's where I sit. Republicans do the same thing. I, I, I have more uh, respect for a Republican who under who who acknowledges that if they are in their party, they're against a woman's right to choose. That they're if 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 they support their party, they're against Roe versus Wade and they're against reproductive rights and bodily autonomy and privacy. Just say it. Don't don't be a coward, as you said, Ben, Absolutely. and say, no, but I'm in my party. But no, I'm really for women and I'm really for their rights. No, I'm for, I'm for women. Not. I'm for democracy. I'm for no, you're all not. these things. You're not. You're not. And, you're if, not. and if your views are you want a fascist leader and Just you want it. to take away reproductive <laughs> rights, that's your view. Right. Say what? Yeah, exactly. Be say proud. What, Fly your flag. Be proud. Say, <laughs> say what your view is. I want to break down that ruling Popak, its implications. First, I just want to give a quick shout out, though, again, to one of our partners, uh, Policy Genius. Uh, if someone relies on you financially, a child, a parent, or even a business partner, life insurance gives you peace of mind that they have a financial cushion if something happens to you. And having life insurance through your job, you may not know this, but it's probably not enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their family. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find the insurance you need at the right price. So head to policygenius.com to get started. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The licensed agents of Policy Genius are on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options and make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you and not the insurance company. And Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees if that's something you're worried about. They don't sell your info to third parties. And Policy Genius has options that offer coverage in as little as a week to avoid unnecessary medical exams. I use Policy Genius, and I hope that you will use Policy Genius too, or at least just check out the options on Policy Genius. So go to policygenius.com slash legal AF. Again, head to policygenius.com slash legal AF and get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can say. That's safe. That's policygenius.com slash legal AF. Now I want to talk about the Supreme Court uh, ruling that leaked. Just to give you some background about this, this relates to the case involving Dobbs and the state of Mississippi. This was a case that was briefed and oral argument took place before the court several months ago. Popak, was it in uh, early December um, yes. of 2021? I think it was December 1st or 4th. It was that week yeah. of December 1 in, in 2021. Uh, and that case related to a 15-week ban on abortions in Mississippi. That case had been working. It's, it didn't just arrive in the Supreme Court that day. It had worked its way up through the courts. 
through a concerted effort by the radical right extremist Republicans to overturn Roe v. Wade through various means and various machinations. And we've been seeing that, for example, with the bounty hunter law, SB8 in Texas, turning private citizens as bounty hunters, which was, as I've always you know, described that law, Popak, as kind of a intermediate measure while Roe v. Wade was working its way to be overturned by the Supreme Court, this SB8 created this way where private citizens would sue each other. And the reason that Texas invented that scheme is because kind of going back to these ideas of state actors and what the government authority is versus private citizens, that in order to challenge a private citizen suing another citizen, that lawsuit has to kind of work its way through the court system. So whereas if the government in Texas were to enforce SB8 itself, that at the time would violate Roe v. Wade and be struck down. So in Texas, they invented that scheme for private citizens to sue each other. At the same time, in other states like Mississippi, you know, 15 uh, week bans on abortions, which would be um, uh, removing a lot of Roe v. Wade's uh, uh, constitutional privacy protections, um, which protected a woman's right to have an abortion on her own before. Uh, viability and after viability, the government would have some interest in that. That's what the Roe v. Wade and Casey line of cases had. And so if you actually go look at states, there were some states that basically adopted the viability, you know, that had the viability standard and just didn't have a set like number of what the amount of months were where government was regulating uh, abortions, but they just said at viability. And then there were actually a number of states that would say like 22 weeks or, or, or actually give a set amount of weeks. But then the states to try to challenge Roe v. Wade also tried to lessen what those months are where the government can get involved. And when we say the government get involved, uh, uh, pull women out of their home and arrest them and charge them with homicide, charge them with murder. Um, and uh, possibly in states that have the death penalty, give women the death penalty. That is when we're saying what the government involvement is, the government involvement is arresting women and charging them with murder. That's that's what we're talking about when government's being involved, punishing the woman and the provider um, who provides the abortion. So this case in Mississippi, which had the 15 week ban that went before the Supreme Court. And rather than even just kind of address the 15 week ban, what the comments and questions by the radical right Supreme Court seemed to suggest where they were not just going to uphold Mississippi's 15 week ban, but that they were actually going to overturn Roe v. Wade in this case as well and say Roe v. Wade and Casey and the line of cases that recognize this fundamental privacy right of women and childbearing persons, that that is bad law and should never have been passed. And so you and I had said on past podcasts, unfortunately, it looks like the best result that could come out of this case is that Roe v. Wade is going to be partially overturned, you know, with the 15 week ban being upheld. But what it looks like is they're going to strike down Roe v. Wade. And you and I said, no one's talking about that. They're going to strike down Roe v. Wade. And we kind of have echoed it on each pod as we've talked about SB8 and all these other measures. And sure enough, this decision that's written by Alito, 
um, the majority decision. Popak, you talked earlier about a majority decision of the court. And this is Alito plus four other justices um, uh, who, rec- who, who are the most extreme right. Um, so kind of a five to four decision um, that would strike down Roe v. Wade. Now, John Roberts, the chief justice, in the opinion that we see, he says that he would have upheld the 15 week ban, but not overturn Roe v. Wade, which is also exactly what you and I said that he would likely do there. But this decision, this draft decision leaked, the Supreme Court confirmed its authenticity and Democrats, independents, people concerned about reproductive rights, people with basic decency were horrified by this ruling and the implications that the government's going to start arresting women immediately um, once this actually becomes the law of the land. And so to be clear, this is not the law yet. The decision has not officially come down yet, but the decision looks like that's going to be coming in the next month or so. And this is going to be the decision. And um, you have people on the radical right who start blaming the leak. They're not even celebrating the ruling. They're blaming the leak. And Trump has say, been totally quiet. No Trump press conferences about Roe v. Wade. And, you know, that's that's the state of play now. So, Popak, what is yeah. your thoughts? What? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just say this before throwing it to Popak. The decision that Alito wrote to is just a horrific and disgusting and sickening opinion like and intellectually it, dishonest intellectually dishonest but that that almost makes it sound smart like this is a <laughs> sick decision you could use the word intellect this is a yeah. sick decision that you would expect to be like written frankly by like the taliban like that's how sick it is and the quotes are not even to like the united states constitution the quotes are to people like someone named Matthew Hale, who's like a 17th century jurist who believed this is who they're quoting. He believed that a woman is property of a man. This individual, Matthew Hale, oversaw the executions of multiple women for witchcraft. I'm not making this up. And that this Matthew Hale believed that men should beat women, men should hit women, and that women have no rights whatsoever. And, and Alito relies on him in his analysis. Yeah, the, 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 the majority opinion quotes Matthew Hale and basically says that we do not have a tradition in the United States of uh, providing reproductive rights to women, but that the tradition is the tradition of Matthew Hale. That's what it says. I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah. Okay. So we also have a tradition of slavery in this country. Here's the implications. And we've talked about it. You've had a really great podcast with Mary Trump recently, where you went over this decision. And and in the midweek edition, we had Robbie Kaplan, constitutional litigator extraordinaire with with Karen and me going over it in detail for a full hour. But let, let me let me see if I can I can summarize and bring some some new information or new perspective to um, to this. Firstly, the reality. The reality is this draft majority opinion indicates that there are, are five votes, that those votes were taken in February. That's the date of the majority opinion, two months after the oral argument. And that, and that unless there is a change and somehow one of those votes gets peeled off 
and whether that's Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, because you know it's not Amy Coney Barrett, Alito or Thomas, that this is going to be ultimately, it'll be polished more. Uh, there'll be some back and forth more, some language that's in now will be taken out. But the fundamental basis of this 80 page opinion, overturning both Roe versus Wade and Casey as the settled law of the land for 50 years, the first time a, a Supreme Court has given a right to a minority and women are not minority by number, but they are a minority by the way they are treated by society in terms of rights, protections, and power. Giving a right to them and then taking it away first time in history. And the basis for that is, is his attack on the law of precedent, the principle of precedent, what we call stare decisis, which is, that, which is what the Supreme Court is constantly supposed to be using in their analysis. And now you have both Alito saying in his opinion and Clarence Thomas saying earlier this week when he was addressing the 11th Circuit in Georgia, uh, giving a speech that we don't use stare decisis and precedent on, on constitutional principles when we're the Supreme Court and we shouldn't ever do it. There shouldn't be settled law, Clarence Thomas just said, when it comes to constitutional presses, precedent. We should always be looking at it fresh. That is a reversal of 200 years of precedent about the role of the Supreme Court in interpreting the U.S. Constitution. That is That would be heresy if it were declared 20 years ago by Sandra Day O'Connor, 30 years ago by Rehnquist, by Blackman, by Brennan, by anybody else that wore that black robe and called themselves a conservative. That would be heresy. But now that is the legal principle upon which they are now clearing the shelves of all of the things that they want to get rid of if they've been chomping at the bit, the Federalist group, to, to, to take care of now that they have the numbers and they're going to do it first by killing the concept of stare decisis and principle. And now going back, as you said, Ben, and looking at, let's look at the history and whether abortion was legal or not legal in history. What does that matter? What they're supposed to be doing in interpreting the living, breathing document of the Constitution, which is not a code book. It was intentionally by the framers made to have flexibility and to have the mores and the social norms of the day and evolving mores and morality read onto the document. Well, this group of right-wing federalists don't want to do that. They want to go back and look at our and bring our country back to the 1700s and the 1800s. Uh, and back to witchcraft and women having zero rights and being chattel and property in society. Why don't we go all the way back to slavery? Why don't we reinstall slavery? And the other scary result so that we can manage expectations and we don't wanna be an I told you so position, but to, to manage these expectations, what are the implications of this majority opinion if it becomes law, which it will be in the summer? It is, it is that any right that is not expressed literally in the U.S. Constitution, from a woman's right to choose, to um, sex between um, gay people, um, to other women's rights, to other rights of disenfranchised people in America that have been established through the right of privacy that's not listed in the U.S. Constitution, but has been part of constitutional precedent. Anything that comes from the 14th Amendment from the due process clause, from the Fifth Amendment that was expressed by one court at one time is now up for grabs and could be changed at a moment's notice without even respect to stare decisis or precedent because they have the numbers. 
So today it's woman's right to choose in a bodily autonomy. Tomorrow, it could be the right for you to love who you want in your bedroom. All the things that were established in the 1980s, the 1990s, DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, gay marriage up for grabs, transgender rights, though, though that's small R rights now with the Supreme Court. And I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not making, I, you know, I'm not trying to make this apocalyptic, but this is the result of the legal precedent that five or four other justices have signed on to in their analysis uh, in the Alito decision. And Roberts, shame on John Roberts, because, you know, he he gave the decision over to Alito. He could have chosen who he wanted to write the majority. Once he realized he was not in the majority, he could have chosen anyone to write that decision. Anyone would have been better, except for Clarence Thomas, in writing I mean, that really, decision. I mean, I, 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 I mean, don't know. It would have been I'm, better. Possibly. Who knows? I mean, Ka Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is the biggest coward. <laughs> because I know a lot of people on our Twitter feed are saying they were liars. They lied under oath. They said they wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. Not quite. They were very, they had a, they had a canned speech ready. But if you go back to the tape and listen to it, what each of them said is they recognized that Roe v. Wade was, quote unquote, settled law, meaning a decision that had already been made. They did not take a blood oath and swear allegiance to Roe v. Wade and they, uh, that they would never overturn it. Yeah. The one, the one, but wait, wait, but, but wait, the one that came closest and the one that, 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 that Collins, Susan Collins is all upset about is Kavanaugh did come closest to saying that he would not overturn Roe v. Wade. The other ones just recognize settled law. That's not the same thing as saying I'm not going to overturn it. Yeah. The, it, it gives him a pass though, Popak. I mean, it's, it's settled law that I can't, uh, go out on the highway right now at 120 miles per hour, you know, and then when I get pulled over by a cop and then the cop arrests me, I go, I, th th that law is unsettled. What are you talking about? Like the, when you say as a Supreme court that it's settled law, the implication is that you're going to follow Agreed. the law, you Agreed. know, and, and, and for the Supreme court to be so sneaky and be like, well, I just acknowledged that that's the law, but gotcha, gotcha. I'm going to change it, you know, is but Trump said he would only put on people that that genuflected to the concept of reversing Roe v. Psych, psych. I said it was settled law, but that's not I mean, in Popak, when we talk about. Today, it's this and tomorrow, here are the things and you paint this dystopian picture. Um, and and commentators do. I still want to focus on the today because what this is doing to women, childbearing persons is absolutely horrific. And here's what Republican legislatures have immediately started to do. Um, so this comes out of, for example, this is just a Louisiana bill passed by a Republican legislature there, which defined person includes a human being from the moment of fertilization and also includes a body of persons, whether incorporated or not. And what Louisiana did was it actually crossed off in that language already. So not just the moment of fertilization that's in there. So if you uh, take kind of, you know, an emergency pill, you know, at, at a zygote stage or whatever, you now have committed a murder under Louisiana law. But Louisiana law specifically took out language that says 
and implantation. And so what uh, Louisiana bill has done, not only does it define a person as right upon the moment sperm meets egg, but it also criminal, the criminalization covers ectopic pregnancies by striking the words uh, and implantation. And so think about how horrifying that is. And so what does this mean of what's going to happen? When this becomes the law of the land, we are going to see what happened in Texas, where the woman was arrested and she was charged with homicide. And then the prosecutor um, dismissed, the ch- dismissed those charges because that wasn't the law. You are now going to find on a daily basis, women are going to be arrested for murder every single day. They're going to be pulled from their cars, from their homes on the streets by police officers arrested and charged criminally with homicide. And then you're going to also have the providers arrested for homicide. You're going to have prosecutors try to get the providers to flip on the women, the women to flip on the prosecutors to charge one with murder and the other with murder. This is what happened before the before Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. That is what's going to happen. And what's going to happen now, though, especially with Um, social media and phone cameras. This is going to be broadcast and we're going to see this every day play out in very public ways of states prosecuting women. That's what's going to happen every single day. Yeah. So let let me stay in the moment. I agree with you. 23 states will ban abortion either entirely after Roe v. Wade is overturned this summer or uh, practically ban it. 13 states have on their books trigger provisions that as soon as that literally says as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned sometime in the future, 30 or 40 years from now, we go to a total ban in our state. And that is um, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee and Kentucky. And we have legal AFers in all of those in all of those states. So you've got 23 that are going to ban it. Uh, of that, 13 will do it almost automatically. The only place you and I disagree is because of the leaked Senate Republican um, talking points. I don't think they're going to criminalize the, the the mother. I think they're going to criminalize everything around her. Who's they? The, late, uh, the person that takes her to the clinic, the clinic operator, the doctor, the who's issue. they in your example, the federal court or the state courts? Oh, the, no, the state is going to do it. The state is. I don't oh. think the federal. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying you but, think that the state is not going to criminalize the mother. I correct. I don't think the state. Oh, I totally is gonna, disagree. I totally. Disagree. I know. I know you do. I know you do. I think I think it's terrible. politics. These, these crazy the Republicans, they're going to go after are you kidding me. They're going to go after the mothers first. They hate right. women. They're, they're so going right down to. They're going right after, but they the don't mothers. have to. But my point is, they don't have to. In order to accomplish their goal, they can say, "Oh, the mommies and the babies," and we're going to go after every other instrumentality that relates to abortion. And the one that's really going to come up back before the Supreme Court is going to be when the Handmade Tail states, the twenty-three states, start criminalizing anyone going to the other states to get an abortion. The Texas woman who goes to New York either because her company pays for it, and some have offered to do that, family members, or she drives, or charity, or whatever, there's going to be now a future, we're going to talk about this one day, 
Texas versus New York, literally Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court's going to have to rule. Is that a violation of the Commerce Clause because of interstate travel? Is that a travel vi- travel clause violation of the U.S. Constitution and travel analysis? How can one state stop somebody from going and taking benefits in another state in this in this in the, in the terms of abortion? I mean, the and and the callousness in which Alito ends his decision with the real world implications of our decision are irrelevant. Really, the real world of the 1700s and 1800s seem to be important to you. So why are the real world of what's going to happen outside that chain link fence that's now sits around the U.S. Supreme Court and all of the women and people that support women? Why is that not important to you as you sit in your ivory hermetically sealed tower as a middle aged senior citizen white man? Why does that not bother you about what you have just ruled? And if you're right, Ben, I'm not saying you're crazy. I just disagree. If you're right. How does he how does he let that happen by his by his fealty to the textualist, originalist, federalist approach to the U.S. Constitution? I'll tell you how I know that I'm right, though, Popak, and how you're wrong, <laughs> okay. um, because it's already happened in Texas without Roe v. Wade being overturned. They were so quick to do it that they didn't even wait until the case happened before doing it to a woman. That's what they want to do. And they did it before the law even changed where the prosecutor had to be like, okay, you did this. You did this too quickly. That's not even what the law is yet, but that's where they're going. That's what the laws, that's what the laws say. Um, but we will, we will keep everybody informed on, uh, on, on what's happening there. And if you just want my one, I'll give you my 10 second perspective on who I think leaked it. If anyone leaked it, it would be the right wingers who would want to link it to try to keep the uh, opinion as is and to and one to signal to states this is coming to start passing the legislation that they need to be ready for it number one and two if there were any judges who were wavering now everybody knows who the judges are that were going to vote for it so that the opinion doesn't change at all to freeze the opinion as is that's who likely would do it there's no doubt in my mind that it was a conservative clerk or somebody working for one of the right-wing justices, there's no way in hell it was a liberal clerk or justice that did this because it makes absolutely no sense. And only, as you said, it only takes the wet cement from February and makes it a hardened cement now. No votes are going to change and everybody's just going to dig in on the Republican side. Well, you're, if it was you're 100% exactly. correct. If, if, it was, if it was going to be someone who was not on the radical right, who would leak it, one of the judges who support democracy and support women, women you would leak it if there was going to be a leak right, right. after the the oral in February, argument, right before the <laughs> before there's a written opinion, you wouldn't do it after there's an authentic written opinion that's been circulated that's about to be published. Okay, let let's be clear. I want to thank everybody for listening to Legal AF. The stakes couldn't be higher right now, which is why this podcast is so important as we break down the key legal issues of the week. I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Athletic Greens, Policy Genius, and Smith AI. One thing I can promise you is this, Michael Popak and I will keep doing these legal AFs every week. We're we're adding more 
shows. We've got the midweek with uh, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Cy Vance is number two, the number two at the whole Manhattan DA's office before she started at uh, private practice and practicing uh, with us here on Legal AF. I want to thank all of you for your support. We're going to keep fighting with you each and every day. We will see you on the next Legal AF. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak signing off. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.